Well, grab your Bible and turn with me to Genesis. We'll be in chapter 44 here soon. We've been talking over the last number of months about Joseph and the average Joe, how we can relate, the average person can relate to what God did in and through Joseph. Tonight, we're going to look at what we can learn about reconciliation through Joseph's story. The Bible has a word for the process of healing of strained or even broken relationships. And when God heals it, he brings reconciliation to those relationships. And, and for us to dive into this tonight, I want us to see the, the uh, definition. Well, what do we mean by reconciliation or to reconcile? There in your notes, you see Webster tells us uh, to reconcile is to reestablish friendship between, to settle or resolve as a dispute, to make consistent or uh, compatible. All relationships, by their very nature, tend to erode at one time or another because we are selfish human people. And when we begin to put ourselves at the center, it can bring a fracture to a relationship. The Bible has a word for that too. It, it's sin. Any time that we begin to take our will and put it above God's will, that's sin. James 4.17 tells us that anyone who knows the good that he or she ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, our culture is not so excited to have things called out as sin, and, and maybe if, if you don't do what someone else wants you to do, that's your prerogative, or that's your choice, or, or that's just kind of what's true or right for you. But Scripture is clear that any time God has put a standard, He says, this is what I want, and we take our will and put it above God's will, it is sin. Sin is lawlessness. And when we begin to see fractured relationships, it is often sin that drives the chasm between these relationships. Sin is saying, my needs are most important in the relationship. And as long as selfishness is the motive of that relationship, they will suffer over and over. But God provided a way for the average person, for Joseph and for us, to know reconciliation. He provided a way for us to reestablish friendship with him vertically. And there, there is a, a vertical aspect of reconciliation. And then God also gives us the gift of a horizontal aspect of reconciliation. One of the best examples of how this happens is in the life of Joseph we find in the book of Genesis that we've been walking through together. But before we take a closer look at this story... It's important for, for me to clarify what it is we really mean and what our proper expectations when it comes to reconciliation. So first, jot this down. Notice from our working definition we're looking at here, reconciliation is not, it isn't restoring the relationship. Well, pastor, that just kind of sounds like what it is. What do you mean it's not restoring the relationship? Well, to restore something is usually to bring it back to its original condition. For example, if you restore a car, I think there's a few people in here that I know have a, a hobby of restoring a car. If you're going to restore a car, often you want to get that car back to its original state. So you use original parts and you try to get it to the original paint color and you want the original seats and, and all the things to get it exactly like it used to be. That may work for cars, but it's not what works in relationships. Sometimes... Relationships cannot be brought back to the way they were. Sometimes a marriage cannot be restored to its original condition, but there is always a path for reconciliation. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, their relationship with Him was ruined. 
It would never, ever be the same. But God took the initiative, and he didn't just restore to the original condition, though that would be sweeping something under the rug. He reconciled their relationship. That relationship would never be the same as it was in the beginning. It was always different. In some ways, it was better, but it would never be exactly the same. Reconciliation isn't just restoring a relationship, but jot this down. Reconciliation is reestablishing a relationship. Now, this is powerful. For somebody here who's dealing with a fractured relationship, and sometimes if the target on the wall is to restore it to the way it was, and you go, you know what, I've tried to, to get everything back the way it was, and it never seems to get that way, that's not the pattern of what God is calling for reconciliation. He wants to reestablish the relationship vertically with Him and horizontally as we do that with others. Reconciliation is reestablishing the relationship. That's exactly what God did for us when Jesus died on the cross. All of us were born with this bent towards sin. Now, on an evening like this, I doubt that information I'm sharing with you is the first time you've heard it. In fact, many of you have probably taught a lesson or a Bible study on original sin, but it's good for us not to forget what it is God has done for us in reestablishing that relationship. We were born with a bent towards evil, a desire to get our own way. The bad news is, is that original sin created a chasm between us and God. The relationship was irreparable. But God demonstrated his love for us by coming to earth in the form of a human in his son Jesus and allowed us to be reconciled with him. Jesus, who died on the cross, reestablished a path for a relationship to be created again with God. When we put our trust in him, we fully identify ourselves in Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God. That vertical relationship is reestablished, and God is calling us to make sure that that is happening, reconciliation horizontally with one another. Often we say, you know, I, I want to be reconciled with God. I want to have a relationship reestablished with God. But I'm not so sure that I'm excited to have that reestablished with someone else on the horizontal. We'll see tonight that God's pattern for reconciliation should transform us. And if it's only vertical, we are blocking the process that God wants to do. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In essence, God isn't in the business of just restoring the old. He is doing something new. Behold, I am doing a new thing. I have streams of life in the desert where there's death around. I have something new that I'm going to do. Look at verse 18 there in your outline of 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who, one, reconciled us to him through Christ, and two, Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you feel like you have the ministry of reconciliation? Not making things perfect or going around and just waving a magic wand over relationships and getting everything to go back to perfect. But do you have a peace about you that you could be a peacemaker and you can begin to reestablish a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ? Scripture is telling us that that's part of the transformation that God wants to do. See, you and I can never get our relationship right with a family member, with a friend, with a spouse, with a co-worker until our relationship is first right with God. 
But when we do, we can be an agent of reconciliation for everybody around us. That's exactly what happens to Joseph and his family. Because Joseph continually kept his trust and dependency upon the Spirit of God through all the injustice he had, through all the disappointments, through all the hard times, he came out being a person who opened up reconciliation horizontally as well as receiving it from God. Let me set the scene as you're looking there in Genesis chapter 44. Joseph tests his brothers. He tests them by putting a silver cup, his silver cup, in their sack that they are going to be taking with them. He put it in the sack of his younger brother, Benjamin. Now, this setup that Joseph does, it's, it's not motivated out of resentment. He's not trying to get them in trouble. But he did this to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to allow his brothers to be reconciled back to God and to himself. Joseph sends his steward to accuse them of stealing the cup. Admittedly, they deny any wrongdoing. In fact, they are so sure of their innocence, they say, if you find anything in our sack, we will be your slaves and and you can kill the one who's guilty. They know they didn't take this. And so they say, it's not us. So they begin searching the sack and each person and the oldest to the youngest. And when they open up Benjamin's sack, you know what happens. You've read this passage before. There was the cup. They were shocked. They couldn't believe their eyes and in disbelief. They were consumed with the dread of finding the cup there. They know that they didn't take it, but now they are caught in circumstantial evidence and they don't know what is next. Then they return to the city to meet what they believe will be their certain doom. And they are brought before Joseph, the prime minister, and Judah takes the spotlight. You remember Judah? Remember uh, he was the older brother who devised this plot? To sell Joseph into slavery some 20 years earlier. He's also the brother who had vowed to his father that he would stake his very life on making sure that Benjamin would come back alive and come back healthy and well. With incredible fear and dread, I would imagine, he steps forward and look at verse 16 with me of chapter 44. What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt, and we are now, my Lord, slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. See, this is what God and Joseph were waiting for, a confession of personal guilt and sin. That's why the test was given. Joseph wanted so badly to unite with his brothers, but he knew that if he stood in the way of reconciliation, it would not happen. It couldn't happen until there was a confession of guilt. Now, Judah isn't confessing to the crime of taking the cup. That would be a false confession. That was not what he was acknowledging had been happening. He's going back 20 years when he sold his brother into slavery. He realizes that God doesn't overlook any offense that's not repented of. Look at verse 17. We find Joseph's response. But Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will be my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Now don't miss this. Why would Joseph say that? This is the second test. 
The first was a vertical test to see if, if they would confess before God, if they would acknowledge that they had had some wrongdoing. They didn't take the cup, but they knew that they had sin harbored in their heart against their brother. This second test is a horizontal test, confessing to man. If Judah truly had changed his heart, it would be manifest in his relationship with his brothers as well as with God. So what did Joseph do? He puts Benjamin in the same plight that he was in two decades ago. He sets them free, but he keeps Benjamin as his slave. Judah abandoned his brother Joseph many years ago, and now Joseph is seen if he would go to bat for his younger brother, if anything had changed. What follows in verse 18 and to the end of the chapter is a testimony of a broken, humbled man. A man who died out to himself, died out to selfishness, a man who was being transformed by the very power of God. There are words of this man 20 years earlier that said, Take the conceited brother of ours and get rid of him. Let him live a life of slavery. It would be good for him. But listen to him now. We find in verse 18 through 29, there is a very different attitude. You can skim that. Maybe this is good for reading a little bit later on. There is a very different attitude we see. Judah is pleading for his brother. He is pleading for his father. Twenty years earlier, he could have cared less what happened to his brother or what his father would feel. But now his conscience had been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit of God, and it says, I can't do that to my dad. I can't do that to my brother. We find in verse 30 through 32, there's more of that same broken and contrite spirit. Then the next verse, look at verse 33. It's a critical moment in this 20-year process of reconciliation. Here's what it says. Now then, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, in place of my younger brother, in place of Benjamin. And let the boy, my younger brother, return with his brothers. Right here marks a breakthrough for Joseph, a breakthrough for God. And and something is happening in his brother's life, in Judah's life. He had been waiting to see this in his brother. In that moment, Judah died out to himself. He put his life on the line for his father and for his brother. He's not just a reformed man, but he's becoming a transformed man. There's nothing keeping Joseph from withholding his identity. They passed the test. The path is clear now for reconciliation, to reestablish the relationship. There's nothing that they could say that would undo the pain that they caused for Joseph as he was thrown into that well, as he was sold into slavery, as he was falsely accused as, as a result of all that for things he didn't do with Potiphar's wife. He couldn't fix everything. But the relationship had a path opened up again. A path to reestablish that relationship. You say, well, Pastor Brady, that, that's good, and, and we've been walking through Joseph's life, and I, I guess, you know, I'm happy for them. That's great. But what does that mean for you and me today? What is it that God wants to give us in the message of reconciliation? 
There are four things, and there's probably a whole lot more, but there's four I want to highlight that I think God wants us to apply our life to Scripture. Before we move on, one of my pet peeves is when we talk about, um, you know, taking God's Word and applying it to our life. And I know it's semantics. But don't take God's Word and apply it to your life. Take your life and apply it to God's Word. One kind of gives us the idea that I take a verse or a passage, kick it and screaming out of its context, and I begin to make it fit and stick it on me wherever I want that blessing or that truth to appear. But I believe God wants us to take our life and, and lay it out, prostrate on His promises and say, God, I'm putting all my weight in You. This morning, as Pastor Edgar and the choir and the worship arts team led us through the song about what we believe We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. It was a great declaration of our faith, but I think sometimes we forget that when we talk about belief, it's not just a mental ascent. It is putting our weight on. If I believe in Jesus, it's probably better put, I believe on Jesus. I believe on the Father. I put my weight on it. And that's exactly what I believe God wants us to do with this passage of Scripture. God, would you show me how to lay my life out on your principle of reconciliation? Well, enough talking about it. Let's look right at it. Here's the first key truth we can pull from this passage and and begin to say, God, help me lay my life on your truth. Reconciliation is not the easy way, but it is God's way. If you're like me, you often like to find the easiest way to get something done. It's been enough time. I can go ahead and confess to some friends like you. It was about 13 years ago. We got a treadmill for our house, and I was going to assemble the treadmill in the basement. There was a booklet that looked like a textbook, and I thought, who needs that? There was a faster way to get it done. There was only so many bolts and only so many holes and the pieces to put together. Surely I could get this done. So I put the whole treadmill together and finally when it was all done and it worked and it turned on, something didn't look right. I had all the wiring going outside of the tubing and the metal tubing was already in place. It was a mess. It would work. It technically did its function, but it looked ugly in the other people in my house were not very excited about what I had done to the treadmill. It never was quite the same, and, and I didn't follow the path that was set before me. It wasn't the right way, but it sure was the easy way. That treadmill didn't last very long because we had a, a dog who was named Selah, and the dog found the wire and began to chew away at it, and it didn't work for too much longer. There is easier ways to get through relationship problems. There's easier ways that you don't have to read through stuff. You just kind of have a knowing in your knower that this will kind of get you through, but it's always a band-aid approach. And reconciliation is hardly ever the easy way, but it is always God's way. It took two decades for Joseph's brothers to be reconciled to God and to their brother, but Joseph didn't give up. Is there anybody that you've been praying for in a relationship that you're tempted to grow weary in? Maybe it's a close friend or a family member who, to the best of your knowledge, doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a feud that's been happening between two parties that you think, I don't know if it's ever going to end. Twenty years Joseph waited for reconciliation with his brothers. 
I had a great privilege growing up, and every night when we go to bed, my dad pulled out a, a, a spiral stenographer's notebook that had a line down the middle, and on one side, we would write the prayer requests that we were praying for, and on the other side was where we would chart the answers that God would give to these prayers. It began to sink into me that this answer sheet would fill up as fast as the other sheet would fill up on the request side. And so it became to be exciting to me to to pray about things. But there was one column that we prayed for all throughout elementary school, and there was never an answer. All throughout junior high, there was never an answer. All throughout high school, and there was never an answer. My dad grew up in an alcoholic home, and uh, he was the first believer in Jesus in his home. His cousins took him to church, but if it wasn't for them, he didn't have any family who trusted in Jesus. And and I remember growing up with Grandpa Wisehart being anything but a positive influence. And we prayed night after night after night for Grandpa Wisehart to get saved. It wasn't through my first year of college there was an answer, but it was in my second year that my grandmother had passed away and life began to change for Grandpa Wisehart. Grandpa Weishart was a rough guy, and, and uh, he was every stereotypical thing of an alcoholic. All you had to do was cross him just a little bit, and he'd tell you what for, what you did, and what everybody else in his life did to him, and you were going to pay the price for it. And uh, one week, my dad called me and said, there's been an answer to prayer. Grandpa Weishart accepted Jesus. I'd love to tell you my response was with great joy, but I was pretty skeptical. I've been praying for a long time, and and Grandpa Weishart had been around the gospel and heard it many, many times. But it wasn't until I heard the report of Grandpa Weishart going to a doctor's office, and and he had some kind of a mole right here on his eyebrow, and and the nurse suggested that she could do something to help, and Grandpa Weishart, in true form, just laid into her and said, Do you think you know more about my eyebrow than I do? And just told her what for this way and that. But then something different happened. He stopped what I'm told of the story, and he turned to that nurse and said, You know what? That's not what I wanted to say. You don't deserve that. And then he walked out. The Holy Spirit began to work on him and said, You know what? That wasn't much of an apology. So Grandpa Weishart, who I never knew to say sorry about anything, wrote this long letter to the doctor and to the nurse and asked for forgiveness, and I got a copy of that letter. God brought reconciliation to Grandpa Weishart. For 20 years, Joseph had been praying for his brother. It's not easy, it's not the fastest way, but it's always God's way. Friend, let this be a challenge to you. Reconciliation is possible with God. There's no relationship that cannot be restored to him or could not be restored to somebody else horizontally if we do it God's way. Joseph, he kept the right heart, he kept his attitude positive, and he focused on God. He allowed the Spirit of God to continually control and to direct his life. Because he did that, what was meant for destruction, God not only used to save his life, but to save many others. Listen to me, friend. When you are hurt beyond belief, when the betrayal that has come to you is so painful, when the ones you love have hurt you so bad, it's so easy to respond, to run and cut loose from them. That's the easy way to blame It's the easy way to play the victim. 
That's what the world tells us is our right. But that's not God's way. God's way is reconciliation. And I think a second key thought that we can put our life on top of this truth, jot it down, reconciliation is not overlooking sin. It's overcoming sin through Christ. It'd be easy to say, well, pastor, this is good. I want reconciliation and I want to reestablish relationships. So you know what? I'm just going to not worry about that sin that's happening there. That's not God's way either. God wants us to overcome the willful disobedience through the power of Christ. As deeply as Joseph wanted to embrace and be reconciled with his brothers, he knew that God was working through a process and he did not reveal himself until the time God told him to. So Joseph resisted the temptation for a quick fix and he trusted God for his timing and for his radical transformation. See, don't try to reform your life or try to reform somebody else's life when God wants to transform your life. This is where grace comes in and this is where where legalism falls short every time. When you try to do this out of your grit and your willpower and your might, I'm just going to outlove them and I'm just going to smother them with love. Rarely does that ever work. God doesn't want to just have us reform or try to reform somebody else, but he wants transformation to happen. And often that is on his time, not anything that would be ours. God is not honored by your bitterness. He's not honored by your sorrow. God is honored with true reconciliation that upholds his standard from a broken and contrite heart. When we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, he brings about transformation. That leads to a third principle. Reconciliation does not require a reforming of self. It requires a death to self. There's a part of me that would say, you know, that doesn't have to be true. But without that peace, I don't know if reconciliation in its full form can ever take place. This dying to self is always painful often gut-wrenching, but it is critical for us, the average Joe, for the average person who can identify with Joseph and God's reconciliation in his grace. Only when Judah had reckoned his life and he died out to his pride, died out to what he thought was his rights, then and only then was he able to truly be reconciled to God and to his brother. Your spiritual heart problem cannot be fixed with a band-aid approach. We need a radical surgery and a heart transplant. As long as you think that you can patch things up and put things back together, you will never know the joy and the freedom and true reconciliation. The Holy Spirit is the one who can cleanse your self-centered heart and fill you with His reconciling love. We talk a lot about being filled with the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Spirit, to be sanctified holy. But I think sometimes we forget to teach or talk about the tremendous benefits of the Spirit-filled life. This is not something that we just hammer someone over the head or we just try to beat ourselves up with, well, this is what should happen in my life. Friend, there is so much freedom. There is so much joy. God never designed you as a believer to go through life trying to push yourself 
through your salvation. God says, you have never had enough. Let me be the power source in you. Let me be the one that will do it in you. And it only happens when we die to ourselves. We can try a shortcut. We can try a specific prayer to try to hang on to a particular spiritual gift. But every time, biblically, we see the Spirit gets all of us when we die to ourself. Fourth, reconciliation is not motivated by human love, but by God's love. I love this. Have you ever met somebody you just go, they are hard to love? Have you ever met someone like if you have, raise your hand. Come on. If you're not raising your hand, you're that person for somebody else, okay? You may say, nobody exists Well, you're that way. Sometimes it's just hard to love somebody. The good news is God didn't command you to love them with your love. He says, my love is what you should access. And so when you begin to love them out of the love of God, it changes everything. And reconciliation now begins to flow vertically between God and horizontally between others around us. It's not motivated by your human love, but by God's love. There's nothing natural about Joseph's love for his hateful brothers. It's, it's ultimately supernatural. Reconciliation isn't a result of human love on steroids. It's been puffed up. No, it's a result of God's agape love that's imparted to us. I like what Dr. Dennis Kinlaw observes in his studies in the New Testament, in the New Testament writers. He shares in his writing that those early scholars and the people writing the text for us didn't have a word for God's love, and so they come up with this agape love to give a different understanding to us of what God's love is. None of the common words for love would do, and if you or I to be reconciled with God or with fellow man, our idea of love will never work. When Valentine's Day comes up and we're inundated with images of what Hallmark tells us love should be or what you should give to your significant other, this human love is not what God is asking us to apply in our life. Just look at Joseph, for example. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. Now that sounds good, like, you know, a good Bible verse or something. But, but think about this. Joseph is talking to his brothers who threw him in a pit, who left him for dead, who then sold him into slavery. And all these terrible things happened to him at the hand of his brothers. And he looks them in the eye and he says, what, what you may have intended for evil, God has turned upside down and it's been for good. And many people have been blessed. Where does that attitude come from? Joseph is so high and lofty that we can't attain any of this. No, it is not Joseph's love at all. It is God's love, as John Wesley would say, shed abroad in our heart, exploding from our pores, oozing out of every being. One of the things I've learned on this fast over the last 32 days is when you just consume water and electrolytes, I'm told that your breath is nasty. At least that's what my wife has told me. And uh, I've been learning what it means to brush my teeth five and six times a day. Because it oozes out of me all of the toxins and gross things. And, and it's just, I can't help it. It's just, there it's just gross. 
What are you oozing out of your pores? I don't mean about your breath. If it stinks, then go take a mint or something. I don't know. What are your actions, your words, your attitude ooze? Is it God's love or is it your attempt at love? Reconciliation is not motivated by our love, but by God's. As we close tonight, I want to invite you to stand with me before we pray. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that wants to reconcile, is calling out to you and I tonight. Friend, don't ignore His call. I want you to close your eyes as we're going to pray. In just a matter of moments, we'll be dismissed. But I want you to take a personal inventory right now. I want to offer you two tests. One of the vertical between you and God and one horizontal between you and other fellow man. The vertical, take inventory of your relationship with God. Is there a wall between you and God? Is there any debris in your cup that when God tries to fill your cup, it's just clogged with stuff? Is there unconfessed, willful disobedience in your life? God wants to bring reconciliation But it always requires repentance. It always requires us owning up to it. It always requires us humbling ourselves before God and say, God, I'm going to call this sin the same thing you call it, unacceptable. That's the best way I can define confession. Now take another inventory of your life horizontally. Think of your relationships with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers. As strange as it may seem, maybe even your relationship with someone who is no longer with you. Are you harboring bitterness, offense, a get-even spirit, secret sin? God is calling us to be reconciled. The encouraging thing is it's not that you try to restore it and make it as if that wrong thing never happened. God isn't interested in that. He's interested in our confession, our repentance, our godly sorrow, and He wants to do a new thing to reestablish that relationship. Could it be that we've been so focused on what God wants to do in the vertical relationship that we never ever allow it to overflow into the horizontal? As I pray... And you've walked through a mental inventory as I have myself. Let's cry out to God. The God who wants to give us the gift of reconciliation. And give us the ministry of reconciliation. Father, I thank you for what you do in the call of preaching. I confess my brain is tired and I ask again, God, that you take this massive words, and you begin to orchestrate it and weave it into a tapestry of significance for my brothers and sisters. Not in what I share, but in what your word proclaims. God, show us tonight how we can lay our life flat out on your promises. Where we subject ourselves to them and say, God, I know it won't be easy. I know it won't be my way. But your way is better. God, I pray that you'll take from me this desire to be in right relationship with you. But 
this standoffish approach to our relationships horizontally. Transform us, Father. Prick our hearts. If there's places where we are resurrecting the flesh that we once had put to death, we surrender it to you again. We lay down our life and we ask for John 3.30 for us to decrease and for you to increase. Father, I ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Before you go, I believe an act of obedience for us tonight is to find a horizontal relationship, somebody who's like here on earth, so like everybody in this room, anybody you know, and begin to ask God, God, how can I have a ministry of reconciliation? The good news is you don't have to fix it. You don't have to restore it. You can't get it back to what it used to be. But could you reestablish a relationship with someone as a peacemaker? May God bless you. You're dismissed. Hug seven people before you leave, or Pastor Rex will not let you out the door. I think Pastor Rex would like 30 hugs tonight. I've heard that he enjoys that.